Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Where the Monsters Are. I'm Louise and I'm your host for this episode. And I'm Sarah. This week's episode is going to be about the death of the 80s American actress Dominique Dunn. Just before I go any further, if you're enjoying listening to us, please like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have a few minutes, please give us a review on www.podchaser.com because it really helps us to reach other listeners just like you. I'm now going to go into the tragically short life of Dominique Dunn. Dominique Dunn was born on the 23rd of November 1959 to ranching heiress Ellen Beatrice Lenny Griffin and Dominique Dunn, who was a writer, producer and actor. Lenny had multiple sclerosis and was confined to a wheelchair by the time of the death of her daughter. Dominic was the second of six children. One of his younger brothers was writer John Gregory Dunn, who was known for writing the screenplay for, among others, A Star is Born, starring Barbara Streisand. Dunn was a friend of Humphrey Bogart, who started him in his career in Hollywood. Lenny and Dominic split, but remained amicable and never divorced. Dominic said later that he regretted not sticking out the hard days of their marriage. Dominique was born in Santa Monica, California and had two older brothers, Alex and Griffin. Griffin is an actor who starred in movies like An American Werewolf in London and Who's That Girl with Madonna and directed movies like Practical Magic with Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman. Her parents had sadly lost two other daughters in infancy so when Dominique was born it was as though she was loved thrice. Dominique's godparents were Maria Cooper Janice, who was the daughter of Hollywood star Gary Cooper and producer Martin Manoulis. She went to Harvard Westlake School in Los Angeles, Taft School in Connecticut and Fountain Valley School in Colorado. After she graduated, she spent a year in Florence, Italy, where she learned Italian and spent some time there with her father. She studied acting at Milton Katsalis's workshop and appeared in various stage productions. She got her first television role in 1979 in the movie Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker and then got supporting roles in popular TV shows such as Lou Grant, Heart to Heart and Fame. In 1981, she was cast in her first feature film, Poltergeist. She played Dana Freeling, the eldest daughter of the family, who were being haunted by ghosts. The film opened on the 4th of June 1982 and went on to gross more than $70 million. After Poltergeist, she appeared in the final season premiere episode of Chips and the 1982 TV film The Shadow Riders starring Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott. It looked as though everything was going well for Dominique. She was getting recognised for her acting and being cast in TV shows and movies. Shortly before her death, she was cast as Robin Maxwell in the miniseries V. However, she sadly died during filming and her role was recast. According to the series creator during the DVD commentary, Dominique appeared in a scene when the visitors, who were the aliens in the show, first arrive and her back is all that is seen. The miniseries was dedicated to her after she died. She appeared posthumously in Hill Street Blues, which aired on 18th November 1982, two weeks after her death. This episode was also dedicated to her in the opening credits. The episode was released a few nights after Dominique's funeral and her father said that he and his wife watched the episode together. It wasn't until during the trial of her killer that they realised that the bruises that were on her neck were not makeup and were in fact from an attack she had sustained from John Sweeney, who I'll now tell you about. Dominique met head chef John Sweeney at a party at the restaurant Mar Maison where he worked in 1981. After a few weeks of dating, they moved into a one-bedroom house on Rangeley Avenue in West Hollywood. The relationship rapidly deteriorated due to Sweeney's possessiveness and jealousy. They frequently fought and he began to physically abuse Dominique. One report said that he yanked her hair out at the roots during an argument at the end of August 1982. She fled their home, taking refuge at her mother Lenny's house, 
but Sweeney showed up there and began to bang on the doors and windows demanding to be let in. Lenny threatened to call the police and he left. A few days later, Dominique returned to Sweeney and continued their relationship. They argued again on 26th of September 1982 and Sweeney grabbed Dominique by the throat, threw her on the floor and began to strangle her. A friend who was staying with them at the time said they heard a gagging noise and ran into the room where the attack was taking place. Dominique told the friend that Sweeney had tried to kill her, which he denied. He told her to come back to bed and she pretended to do as he said, but snuck out of the bathroom window instead. When he heard her car engine start, he ran out and jumped on the bonnet of her car. She stopped the car long enough for him to jump off the bonnet and then drove away. This was the attack that caused the bruises that showed in the episode of Hill Street Blues, which was first shown after her death. Over the next few days, she stayed at her mother's and then friends' homes and called Sweeney and ended the relationship. After he moved out of the house that they shared, she moved back in and changed the locks. On 30th of October 1982, a few weeks after they broke up, she was at home rehearsing for the V miniseries with co-star David Packer. Sweeney showed up at her home while they were rehearsing and she spoke to him through the door. She agreed to speak to him on the porch while David Packer would stay inside. When she went outside, they began to argue and from inside, Packer later said that he heard smacking sounds, two screams and a thud. He called the police but was told that her home was out of their jurisdiction. Packer then called a friend and told him that if he was found dead, John Sweeney was who had killed him. He left through the back door and approached the driveway where he saw Sweeney kneeling over Dominique in nearby bushes. Sweeney told Packer to call the police. When the police arrived, Sweeney met them in the driveway and told them he killed his girlfriend and that he tried to kill himself by going inside the house and taking two bottles of pills. Police found no evidence of this and he didn't exhibit any ill effects from allegedly taking these pills. During his trial, he testified that they had argued but he couldn't remember what happened after that, claiming that he could only remember being on top of her with his hands around her neck. Dominique was taken to Cedars-Sinai Medical Centre in Los Angeles and was placed on life support. Doctors had to get permission from her parents to put a bolt in her head which would help relieve pressure. However, tests that were carried out over the next few days found that she had no brain activity. On the 4th of November, her parents agreed to remove her life support and at the request of her mother, her kidneys and heart were donated for organ transplant. There were two patients awaiting kidney transplants in the hospital at the time and Dominique's kidneys went to them. Her heart was sent to a hospital in San Francisco and Dominique's body was then turned over to the coroner for an autopsy to be carried out. Dominique's funeral was held on the 6th of November at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills. Her brothers read a poem by Yeats and her, and her godfather, Martin Manoulis, gave the eulogy. She is buried in Westwood Cemetery close to her mother's friends, actresses Natalie Wood and Norma Crane. I'm now going to go over Sweeney's arrest and trial. When police found Sweeney at the site of the attack on Dominique, he was immediately arrested and charged with attempted murder. These charges were dropped and he was then charged with first degree murder after Dominique died, to which he pled not guilty. He was later charged with assault with intent to do great bodily harm when, during a preliminary hearing, he admitted that they had had a physical fight on the 26th of September, the day before she filmed the Hill Street Blues episode. He denied assaulting her, claiming instead that she got the bruises when he tried to stop her from leaving their home. Dominic Dunn reported that prior to the start of the trial, he and Lenny had been visited by a journalist friend who he said was acting at the request of Michael Adelson, Sweeney's defence attorney. 
Adelson was offering a plea bargain where Sweeney was showing remorse and would admit to manslaughter and go to prison for up to seven and a half years if the earlier assault charge that caused the neck bruises would be dropped. Dominic said that there had been an earlier plea bargain from the defence which would have meant they wouldn't have had to go through the stress of a trial but the defence later reneged on the deal deciding instead to go for a trial. During the discussion with the journalists, they said that the defence were threatening to implicate Dominique for being complicit in the crime and that they would call neighbours as witnesses to say that fights between Dominique and Sweeney were a regular occurrence. They later found out that there were two prisoners who were in the same prison as Sweeney who were going to give evidence for the prosecution that Sweeney had told one of them that he had got the police believing that he hadn't intended to kill Dominique and the other would be saying that Sweeney had told him Dominique was an ambitious snob who deserved what she got. Needless to say, the plea bargain was refused and the trial began in August 1983. During the trial, Sweeney took the stand in his own defence and testified that he had not intended to harm Dominique the night he arrived at her home. He claimed that they had previously reconciled and had been planning to move back in together and had discussed marrying and having children. He said that on the night of the 30th of October, Dominique had suddenly changed her mind about reconciling and told him that she'd been lying to him about wanting to get back together and had been leading him on. At this point, he said that he exploded and lunged toward her. He claimed to have no recollection of the attack until he discovered he was on top of her with his hands around her neck. He then realised she wasn't breathing and tried to revive her by making her walk around, but she fell back down. He then attempted to administer CPR, which caused her to vomit. He said that he then ran into the house and took two bottles of pills in an attempt to kill himself. He said that he then went and lay down next to Dominique and tried to pull her tongue out of her mouth, which he'd done for his father when he was having an epileptic fit. His court-appointed lawyer, Michael Adelson, said that Sweeney's actions were not premeditated or done with malice. He said that Sweeney had behaved in the heat of passion provoked by Dominique's alleged deception. Dominique's family denied that Dominique had ever agreed to a reconciliation with Sweeney. They said that they had thought that he'd gone to her house to try to get her to get back with him. The prosecution and police said that when they had arrived at the scene, there had been no physical evidence that Sweeney had tried to kill himself and found him instead to be calm and collected. Frank D'Amelio, the first deputy on scene, testified that Sweeney had told him that he had killed her but hadn't thought he'd choked her that hard. He said that he'd lost his temper and, in his words, blew it again. The medical examiner who performed Dominique's autopsy said that she had been strangled for at least three minutes, causing police and prosecutors to dismiss the whole heat of passion defence that Sweeney was trying for because in the time it took to strangle her, he would have been able to regain control which might have saved Dominique's life. During the trial, Judge Katz repeatedly mispronounced Dominique's name as Dominic, which her father felt exhibited disrespect for his daughter. In fact, Judge Katz continuously made judgments throughout the trial which had a detrimental effect on the prosecution's case. One of these was to refuse the jury the opportunity to hear the testimony of Lillian Pierce, an ex-girlfriend of Sweeney's. Pierce said to the court, while the jury were not present, that they had dated on and off from 1977 to 1980 and that he had assaulted her on 10 occasions over the course of their relationship. She had been hospitalised twice due to the injuries inflicted on her and some of the various injuries she'd sustained were a perforated eardrum, a collapsed lung and a broken nose. While Pierce was testifying, Sweeney became enraged and jumped up from his seat, running toward the door that led to the judge's chambers. Not sure what he was planning to do. It took two bailiffs and four armed guards to subdue him. He then began to cry and was handcuffed to his chair. He apologised for his out burst, denying that he'd been trying to escape and Judge 
Katz just accepted his apology. Sweeney's lawyer requested that Pierce's testimony be ruled as inadmissible as it was prejudicial. From what I could find online, prejudicial in this instance would have meant that Pierce's testimony would have been harmful or detrimental to Sweeney. The judge granted his request and the jury never found out about Pierce's testimony until after the trial, which likely had an impact on the outcome. The judge also refused to allow testimony from Lenny Dunn, Dominique's mother, as well as her friends because their statements about Sweeney's abusive behaviour was hearsay. On the 29th of August, the defence lawyer requested that Judge Katz rule that the evidence provided was insufficient to try Sweeney for first-degree murder because the prosecution hadn't been able to prove predetermination or deliberation. The judge granted the request and told the jurors to consider only manslaughter or second-degree murderous charges. The Deputy District Attorney Stephen Barshop said later that the judge's decision, along with the refusal to allow the testimony of Lillian Pierce, Dominique's mother and friends were serious blows to the case against Sweeney. During a discussion between Dominic Dunn and Stephen Barshop, the latter made a comment about something weird was ha- going to happen in the trial. He was referring to the fact that for some reason, no matter what request defence attorney Michael Adelson made, the judge agreed to them. So they were convinced that nothing was going to happen anyway. During the trial, Sweeney began to appear in a black suit, looking sombre and carrying a Bible. He wouldn't read from the Bible, but would simply place his folded hands over it where he sat and would suddenly start weeping in front of the jury. A cynical person, and Dominic Dunn was rapidly becoming cynical to what was happening in that courtroom, was the fact that Sweeney had apparently found God was very convenient in its timing. Adelson's next request was that Lenny not appear in court as she was in a wheelchair due to having multiple sclerosis. The defence believed that seeing Dominique's mother in a wheelchair would unduly instil sympathy for her in the jury and this would be prejudicial against Sweeney. This did not happen and Lenny continued to attend all sessions. That this had been requested in the first place caused the family to worry because almost everything that Adelson was, was requesting of the judge was being granted. It was becoming apparent that the judge liked Adelson but had no such feelings for Deputy District Attorney Barshop. Dominic spoke of his concerns to a family friend, Samuel Goldwyn Jr. of the MGM Goldwins, who said that he would be seeing the Attorney General of the State of California that weekend so he would ask him about the judge so they could get a feel for him. He subsequently reported back that Judge Katz was known to be an ambitious man who liked to preside over cases with high media interest, such as this one. Indeed, in 1970, he had in fact presided over one of the cases against the Manson family. In his closing statement, Deputy District Attorney Stephen Barshop made a point to say that the county coroner had found that Dominique had been strangled for between four and six minutes. He held up his watch and timed four minutes. The courtroom was silent while the time struck down, allowing all there to become aware of just how long four minutes can take and that this was how long it had taken Dominique Dunn to die. The only sound that could be heard in the courtroom were the whispers that went on for the entire four minutes between Adelson and Sweeney. I'm sure after what I've told you about everything that happened in that courtroom that it won't come as a surprise to discover that on 21st of September 1983, after deliberating for eight days, John Sweeney was acquitted of second-degree murder but found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. Understandably, Dominique's family were outraged at the outcome. After Judge Katz dismissed the jury, telling them justice had been served for both families, Dominic yelled, not for our family, Judge Katz. He accused the judge of purposely withholding testimony that would have shown that Sweeney had a history of violence and abuse with women. 
Media coverage was not kind to Judge Katz and public opinion was definitely on the side of Dominique's family because opinion polls that were run following the verdict put Judge Katz as the fourth worst judge in Los Angeles County. On 7th of November, Sweeney was sentenced to six years in prison for manslaughter, the maximum sentence he could have received, which he would spend in a minimum security prison at Chino in San Bernardino County. He also received an additional six months for the assault that he carried out on Dominique on 26th of September 1982. This meant that with good behaviour, a convict could be granted automatic parole without having to go through a parole hearing. Since time spent in jail between his arrest and sentencing counted as time served, Sweeney could be out in two and a half years. After the sentencing, George Katz criticised the manslaughter charge that the jury had come to, saying it should have been murder. This surprised the jury. Foreman Paul Spiegel said later that he and his fellow jurors were surprised at the judge's reaction and told media that they believed his about-face was because of the backlash he'd received since the conviction. Spiegel added that if the jury had heard all of the evidence that Judge Katz denied them, they would have convicted Sweeney of murder. During the course of the trial, Dominic Dunn kept a journal, which was later published under the title Justice, a father's account of the trial of his daughter's killer. This was featured in the March 1984 issue of Vanity Fair. I've read the journal in full and as it was printed in the magazine and it is a very touching account of a family's attempts to deal with something unthinkable that has happened to a much-beloved daughter and sister. I found it an emotional read and it does almost make you cry at some points. He goes over what happened from when he first took a call from a police officer in his New York apartment at 5am telling him that his daughter was near death in a hospital in LA to the jury selection for the criminal trial, to Sweeney's sentencing. I'll link the article in the show notes so you can read it. It is definitely worth giving it a read if you're interested in this case. Judge Burton S. Katz, who presided over the case, soon transferred to a juvenile court in Silmar, Los Angeles. He later made comments that he regretted some of the controversial decisions he made at the trial, but said that Sweeney should have been convicted of murder. I still think this was because of the poor press that he received after the events of the trial emerged and it makes you wonder how else he thought that he would have been viewed when the full details would be reported in the press. Lenny Dunn founded Justice for Homicide Victims, which is a victim's right group, a year after her daughter's death. In the end, John Sweeney served a total of three years, seven months and 27 days of his six and a half year sentence. Three months after being released, he was hired as a head chef for The Chronicle, which was an upscale restaurant in Santa Monica. Griffin and Lenny Dunn found out where he was working and began handing out flyers to the patrons outside the restaurant that said, the food you eat tonight was cooked by the hands that killed Dominique Dunn. Sweeney eventually quit his job and moved away from LA. In the mid-1990s, Dominique Dunn was contacted by a doctor from Florida who had read his Vanity Fair article. His daughter had recently become engaged to a chef named John Sweeney and he wondered whether it was the same John Sweeney who had killed Dominique. It transpired that it was the same John Sweeney. Griffin later contacted the doctor's daughter and tried to convince her to call off the engagement, which she did. She had been unaware that he was ever in prison or that he had killed Dominique. Sweeney accused the Duns of harassment and later changed his name. Dominic admitted later that he had actually hired the private investigator Anthony Pellicano, who's apparently really famous PI, to follow and report on what Sweeney was doing. It emerged that Sweeney had changed his name and was living in the Pacific Northwest again as a chef. He also admitted that he and his sons had considered asking Pellicano to help hire a hitman to kill Sweeney. 
but they later decided that it was giving him power over them. It appears that Alex and Griffin did actually meet with someone from the Mafia. This came from Dominic, but they decided not to go ahead with it. To be honest, all the way through this, as I was typing, I've been shaking my head. I can't believe how this case ended. I've seen a lot of documentaries and accounts of the criminal justice system in America and indeed in the UK. And it just seems as though no country has got it right when it comes to trying and convicting criminals. You seem to find that either someone who's clearly guilty gets off as either not guilty or with a pitiful sentence, or you find someone innocent who gets convicted. With the exception of the victim's right group that Lenny Dunn started after the death of her daughter, I can't take anything positive from this at all. The fact that a guy who had a history of abusing women he was in a relationship with got away with a tiny sentence, where in the end he served less than four years, just makes you wonder what is the use of the criminal justice system. That's not to say it doesn't work all the time, it's just that when it doesn't it makes you angry. So that's all I have for the very sad death of Dominique Dunn. Any questions or anything, Sarah? I mean, I, to be, in all honesty, I'd, I'd never even heard of her. I, I know who Griffin is. I've seen mo- his movies. I mean, I, I love American Werewolf in London. Mm. I, I didn't even know he had a sister, to be, to be honest. Yeah. It's just, it's tragic. It's also absolutely ridiculous, the whole trial. Yeah. I mean, how old was she when she died? She was 21, I think. Was so she 21 or 23. I couldn't remember if you'd actually said. She died in 1982. She was born in 1959, so 60, 22, 23. I think she was 23. So did she ever report him before? No, not to that, the police. Like she, so she'd never, when he'd attacked her before or her no. family or anyone? I think I, from what I read when I read Dominic's diary that he kept, yeah, I think they had an idea that they'd fought they didn't realise it was as bad? I don't think they did, no. I think Lenny knew more than Dominic did. But because Dominic lived in New York, he was a New York critic, that's kind of what he did. But I think Lenny knew more about what was going on because I guess girls tell their mums, don't they? I guess. Yeah, I guess, yeah. And I think probably her friends knew more. But I think she probably had told people because you've only got to look at the way that that David Packer, that actor she was with the day she died, the fact that he said, if I end up dead, it was him that did it. So he obviously knew something had gone on. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't make people leave someone. You can't stop people going back to someone when they've split up with them anyway, can you, unfortunately? No. And yeah, that David Packer, I was going to ask about him. So... When she went outside to speak to him and he said he heard the bang, like the smack and the scream. Yeah. Did he actually go out then? Because you then said that it took him four minutes to strangle her. So what was happening in them four minutes? I think the way that it turned out, she'd gone out. She told him to stay there. She went out to speak to him. They were arguing so he could hear that. And I think he heard the thud so he knew something had happened. That was when he phoned the police right? and they told him that it's not in his jurisdiction. And I think that was when he phoned his friend and told him, if anything happens to me, it was him that did it. But he didn't actually go out. That was when he went out and that was where he found them in the bushes and he was on top of her strangling her. I mean, the thing that's odd is, I mean, all the way through it, it's odd. The excuses that this John Sweeney gave, you know, the fact that he said that he went into the house and took some tablets. The police knew exactly what had happened. There was no evidence that he'd gone in and taken pills. There was none whatsoever. 
And also the other guy was in there, so he knew that he hadn't gone yeah, be, yeah. even been in the house. Yeah. I guess he would say it's his word against his. Yeah, probably. But yeah, I mean, it's it, it's one of the most bizarre cases I've ever heard. Frustrating. I mean, if you were her family having to sit through that trial. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just... I mean, I will put a link to that article. It's definitely worth a read. It's a very sad case. I'd always known because, I mean, I love Poltergeist. I love that film. I mean, obviously, the... when you said that, yeah, I, I knew who she was then, but I didn't realise she was his. No, but that explains why she was never in any of the others. I really noticed that, to be fair. I'm not sure whether Poltergeist had actually come out when she died or if it had just come out, but she was just sort of on the cusp of yeah. becoming quite successful at what she was doing. I mean, her family were obviously famous. Her family had famous yeah. friends, so... Tragedy. She was part of Hollywood. Yeah, definitely. Okay, then. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And you can let us know what you thought about this and our other episodes on our social media and on www.podchaser.com. If you're enjoying our stories, you can subscribe and follow us on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you can, please leave a review. Mm -hmm. Again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.